You say, Brother Fred, when you knew you could have uh, your friends and these others here today who are leaders in the political world, did you uh, uh, plan a special sermon? No. In fact, first, first of the week, God led me to one verse over in 2 Kings. And by the way, if you want to follow this in your Bible, the majority of this will be 2 Kings chapter 4. Verses 8 through 37. And it's one of the, mo- one of the greatest st- uh, accounts, one of the greatest truths in all the Bible about an encounter with Elisha with a Shunammite woman. And you're going to see one of the greatest examples of faith found anywhere in the Word of God. But you're also going to see a heart-searching question that Elisha asked the Shunammite woman. You know, uh, to give you a little background, Elijah was the prophet, the great prophet of God, that was on the scene when Elisha came along. And Elijah absolutely was, other than Moses, the greatest prophet of God in the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 16, Jesus gets on, is up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's transfigured before them, and the glory of God fell upon him, and he shone like the sun. But guess who came to visit with him? There was Peter, James, and John. He took them up on the Mount of Transfiguration and was transfigured before them. But guess who showed up? It says... And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter answered and said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us make a tabernacle, one for you, one for Moses, and for one Elijah. Now, I'm telling you, Elijah had to be special for Jesus to let him show up with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, later on when the disciples asked Jesus, who do men say that I am? He said, who, who, are they, who are they saying that I am? Well, the disciples answered them, and guess who they named? That's what it says. When Jesus came, this is Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Some, said, Some say John the Baptist. <laughs> Some say you're Elijah. Others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. So I don't have to tell you that uh, Elijah was in high company. He performed 16 miracles in the Old Testament. But right before he was going to go to heaven in a fiery chariot, God told him three things that he was supposed to do. And I want to mention them to you. He said, now, Elijah, you're fixing to go up. But before you go up, I want you to do this. And I'm in 1 Kings 19, verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, go go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, this is what he told him to do. Anoint Haziel as king over Syria. You shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, 
of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Two kings, but he said, now, Elijah's going to take your place. Elisha's going to take your place. So he went and anointed Haziel and Jehu. And then he came to Elisha and said, Elisha, I'm going to put, give you my mantle. And you're going to be the prophet that follows me. And Elisha said, well, let me go home and tell my mother goodbye and daddy goodbye. He said, you do what you got to do. But he did. And from that moment on, I want you to listen. He went everywhere Elijah went. At times, Elisha, Elijah would say, Elisha, you stay here. You stay here because I'm going to go over there. Elisha said, oh, no, no, no. I'm not staying here. If you go, I'm going. He was like Elijah's shadow. And then he, he did something. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 9 through 12, listen to what he asked Elijah. Elijah. Now, he was the prophet to take Elijah's place. Boy, you're talking about a big place to take. Whew. Mighty man of God, 16 miracles, soothed 450 prophets of Baal. But in, 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 in 2 Kings 2, uh, uh, it talks about how that Elisha made a request of Elijah. And let's see what his request was. It's over in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 9. And so it was when they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha. This is what Elijah said to Elisha. What may I do for you before I am taken away from you? He said, Elisha, I'm fixing to go up in a chariot. What can I do for you? And Elisha said, please let me a double portion of your spirit upon me. He said, I want twice as much of the spirit as you have and twice as much the power that you have. And Elijah said, Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing. It's just hard. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken up from you, it shall be so. But if not, it shall not be. Then it happened that as they continued and talked, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind. So that's how Elisha gets on the scene. You ask for a double portion of the Spirit. Elijah performed 16 miracles. Elisha performed 32. But this one in, 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 in um, 2 Kings chapter 4, man, th- this is a powerful picture of faith, a powerful picture of faith, but a powerful picture of how we're to respond to, to two or three questions. Okay, so how did Elisha get to know this lady? In 2 Kings 4 it says, it happened that one day Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as he often passed by, he would turn in and eat some food. Well, she invited him to come eat. It was so good. Every time he had a chance, he went back by there. He was a Baptist preacher. But anyway, let me go on. And she said to her husband, look, Now, I know that this is a holy man of God, but what a statement for her to say about Elisha. This is a holy man of God who passes by regularly. Let's build him a small upper room on the wall. Let's put a bed for him there, a table and a chair and a lampstand, and whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. Well, she built his own room. So he'd come in, he'd eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and he'd go to bed. And and that was a regular place for Elisha the mighty man of God, to go anytime 
He was in Shunem. Well, Elijah, Elisha didn't take this for granted. He knew he was greatly blessed by this lady. So, so he, he came to the point where he said, now, I wonder what I can do for her. Uh, what, what, what can I do to let this lady know how much I appreciate her? And so we look on over in 2 Kings, uh, and he said to, to Gehazi, his servant, this is Elisha, he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. And when he had called her, she stood before him, and he said to her, what can I do for you? Look, you've been very concerned for us with all this care. You've been so good to us. You've gone out of your way. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak to your behalf on the king? You want me to speak to you on, on behalf of the commander of the army? And she said, no, I don't need anything like that. I dwell among my own people. Now, it said that this Shunammite woman was a notable woman. She said, you don't need to speak to the king. or the, I, I, I dwell among my own people. Well, this kind of bothered Elisha. He wanted to do something for her. And he said to his servant, Gehazi, is there... Uh, Anything, it, it says in verse, um, uh, verse 14, so he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son, and her husband is old. Well, next verse, he said, call her. And we had, when she had called her and stood in the doorway, he said, about this time next year, you're going to embrace the son said, you're going to have a miraculous conception. God's going to give you in and, and your husband's old age a child. Exactly one year later, it says, and, but she, she, she didn't want Elisha to lead her on. So she said in verse, uh, she said on the next verse, so she said, no, my Lord, men of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Now, don't you tell me that I'm going to have a son and then I not have one. Are you telling me, are you talking straight to me? He said, I sure am. And exactly one year later, but the woman conceived and bore a son, which was appointed when the appointed time of come, which Elisha had told her. So he met her. She took him in, realized he was a man of God, blessed him. He, he made a prophecy over her. You're going to have a son next year. Right when the time was, she had a child. But then the story takes a very, very interesting turn. Something happened to the child. In verse 18 of 2 Kings 4, and the child grew. That, and it happened one day he went out with his father to the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. Obviously, he was having an aneurysm or something. He said, my head. My head. So he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And we had taken him and brought him to his mother. He sat on her knee to noon. So the father said, take him to his mother, took the child to his mother, sat on his knee, and at noon, uh, and at noon he died. Now wait a minute. He wasn't very old, maybe five, six. This was the one Elisha said, God's going to give you a son. And she said, don't lead me on. But God did exactly what he was going to do. But now, about six years later, 
he dies. So what is she going to do? Well, it's very interesting. And after she, he died, I'm in verse 21 of chapter 4. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. Took him up in the prophet's room and laid him on the bed of the man of God and, and closed the door and went out. And then she said to one of the young men, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God. This is what she told her husband. I I need a donkey. She needed some faster than that, but I guess all she had. She said, I need a donkey and a young man. I am going to the man of God. But look what her husband said. Well, what are you doing that for? It's not new moon nor the Sabbath. It ain't ain't Sunday. What are you going on? on, What are you going now for? It's not the new moon. It's no, no special day. But I want you to listen to what she said. Now, you talk about faith. She said, why are you going to him today? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, it is well. Now, wait a minute. I don't think it's too well. I mean, your son just died. And he's laying up on the bed, the prophet's bed upstairs in the prophet's chamber. And your husband asked you, and you, you, all you said to him, it is well. She knew something in her spirit that God had told her. That woman had faith in her that obviously was unshakable. So as you read the story, she goes on, she rushes to meet Elisha, and finally as she gets close, she knew he was at Mount Carmel. And, and, and so it, it goes on and says in verse 28, 25, this, now this is where I'm going to get to something that really applies. This woman's faith applies to us. She said it's well. But things really weren't in the sight of the world well. Her son was dead. And so it goes on and she says, so when the man of God, verse 25, saw her afar off, he said to his servant Gehazi, look, the Shunammite woman. Please run now to meet her and say to her, now these are three questions. Is it well with you? That would be a good question for me to ask you. Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your son? You know what she said? It is well. Now wait a minute, wait a minute. You've got to let Elisha in on this. He asked you if it was well with you. He asked you if it was well with your husband. He asked you if it was well with your son. And you told him, it's well. But no, he's back on the bed. He's not breathing. He's dead. And so when Elisha found out that the child had died, he sent uh, his servant. Elisha sent his servant ahead. Uh, to the home of the Shunammite woman. And this is what he told him. When you get there, go up into that room, where the, pro- uh, the prophet's room, and he gave him his staff. And he said, you lay my staff on the body of this child. And said, we're going to come on behind you. But I want to tell you, you're talking about something that's powerful that I love about this story. I want you to listen to what this woman told. Elisha. In verse 30, 36, 
It's verse 30. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, I will not leave you. See, what she did when she got close to Elisha and he said, is it well with you? Is it well for your husband? Is it well with your son? She said, it is well. She went and she fell at the feet of Elisha and she grabbed his feet and Elisha's servant said, don't do that. Don't do that. She said, oh, oh, no. Elisha said, you leave her alone. If she wants to grab my feet and hold on to me because she is in great distress. She is in great distress. I don't know why now, but you, you, you just don't leave her alone. You let her, she can hold on to my feet as long as she wants to. But then she tells him, said, all I can tell you, Elisha, you're stuck with me. I ain't going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you. And I know what she was thinking, till my son is alive. Well, Elisha's servant went ahead, laid the staff on the top of that boy's body. He came back and said, nothing happened. Nothing happened. Well, then Elisha says, well, okay. Um, he went up into the prophet's room himself. All right. We're in verse 20, uh, 32. When Elisha came into the house, there was a child lying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. And he went, and he lay on top of the child. He put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. You know, it says when he <laughs> put his mouth on his mouth, I said, Lord, that's the first example of mouth-to-mouth recitation. He just laid out on that child. Can you imagine the picture of the man of God laying on that dead boy? But his flesh got warm. Well, he went back and said, told him what happened. And he just walked around the house. And I don't know what he was doing when he was walking around the house. Man, he was praying. He said, God, you gave that woman this child. And she says everything's well. And you sure honor the faith of your people. You said if you have the faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can move a mountain. And God, I know you're going to honor this woman's faith. And he walked in and out the house, in around the house. And then he went on back up there. And uh, he returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went in and stretched himself out on the child, stretched himself out on him. Now get this, this, this is so meticulous. Then the child sneezed seven times. I guess it's good. Well, anyway, and the child opened his eyes and he called Gehazi and said, called this Shunammite woman. So he called her, and when she came into the to him, she, he said, her, when she came into him, he said, pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, bowed to the ground, picked up her son, and went out. Wow. The next time I sneeze, I'm going to think about this. <laughs> the Shunammite boy. You say, Brother Fred, that... That was an awesome miracle. It was. But I'll tell you what was awesome about it. Let me tell you what was awesome. The first thing that I see is this. 
was the unshakable faith of a woman. One, she recognized the holy man of God, Elisha. She not only fed him, she prepared a place for him to stay. And he spoke to her and said, you're going to have a child. And a year later, she did. Now, when this child died, she said to her husband, it's well. Why? Listen, she she knew that the same God that had spoke through Elisha and she had had a child was the same God that was still on the throne. And she also knew that, that God was awesomely powerful. And when Elisha even asked her how it was with her son, she said, it's well. Hey, listen, she knew that God was going to intervene in that situation. She knew it. She knew how faithful God is. She knows how God watches over his people. And in the midst, can you imagine a tragedy like that? She said, it is well. You know, the real test of our faith is not when everybody's alive and not when everybody's well and not when the wind's at our back and not when we're going downhill and everything seems to be just fine. But all of a sudden, our world is interrupted with unexpected circumstances, tragedies, or difficulties. But you know what? They say, well, what in the world? I'm concerned about him. I think he's, he, he ain't going to make He'll fall apart. Well, I, I'm concerned about it. I don't think she's going to. No. What we have in our heart, even though we may be troubled, even though we may be burdened, even though we may be concerned and we pray, but deep in our heart, the Spirit of God says, it is well. It is well. It is well. I I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know the heartache or the sorrow or the disappointment or the personal battle. I don't know. But I want to say something to you. If you're a child of God, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if Christ is your Savior and your Lord and your faith is in him and you're built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, I want to tell you, no matter what you go through, it is well. It's well. Because God is faithful. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, perilous sword. No, we're more than conquerors through Christ that loved us. And the greatest testimony of our faith is when there's a tragedy and, and we're hurting, yes, and maybe sometimes we're grieving. Maybe sometimes we don't know the answer and sometimes God seems to be late. But deep in our hearts, there's a peace that says, it's well. It's well. God's still on the throne. God's still in control. He loves you. He, he's not going to walk away from you in this time. Well, so just remember, I learned a lot from this lady that no matter what I go through, I can say, well, I know Jesus and he lives in me and it it may not look well to you and it may not look well on the outside and it may not circumstantially look well, but I'm going to tell you something. God is my father. God is your father. Jesus is your savior and it's well, but 
I want to go back to the three questions he asked this woman. And this is what God really impressed me to do. He told me uh, uh, this thing about her faith. But he said, I want you to ask the people there the same questions I asked the Shunammite woman. The first question was, is it well with you? And then the second two are part of the same question, is it well with your husband? And is it well with your child? So the first question I want to ask you, is it well with you? And then I want to ask you this question. Is it well with your family? You know, um, the Bible says that we're to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that God loves you. That he loves you so much that even while you were still a sinner, and even while you were separated from him, God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And the gospel is God, even though we were sinners, even though we were separated from God, God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the Son of God. And so it is not well with you unless you believe the gospel. It's not well. The most important thing in your life is salvation. You say, Brother Fred, you say that quite often. I'm going to say it a thousand more times. The most important thing in your life is to know that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That he lives in your heart. There's been a time in your life when you repented of your sin. God be merciful to me a sinner. And by the way. We repented initially, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and God forgave us. But we live in an attitude of repentance because when we receive a wrong thought or say a wrong word, then we continue to live in attitude of repentance. God, I don't want that. I I repent. I don't want that. And so the, the most important thing is that you know that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You've asked God for mercy and for the forgiveness of your sin. You've made it clear to God that you don't want to live the way you have lived. Repentance means to change your mind and to change your heart. And in repentance, you turn to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only. Because let me tell you about Jesus now. And this really makes religious people nervous. But they're just going to have to be nervous. Because I didn't write it, God did. The only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to God but through me. They say, well, Brother Fred, you are a narrow-minded. Oh, yes, I am. Just as narrow as the Bible. That's how narrow I am. And if Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, nobody's coming to the Father but through me. He said it. That settles it. I'm not going to debate it. Over in the book of Acts, they were talking about the gospel, and they said this. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You see, is it well with you? Have you believed the gospel? 
Has there been a time when you repented of your sin toward God and through faith asked God for God's mercy and, and personally invited Jesus Christ to come into your life and forgive your sins? And you don't have religion, you have a relationship. See, is it well with you? If Christ lives in you and your sins are forgiven and you're a child of God, I'm telling you, you can say to me this morning, Brother Fred, on Christ the solid rock I stand and all other ground is sinking sand. Is it well with you? Do you have a relationship with Christ? You know, when I heard the difference between religion and Christianity, it, it, it helped me. Religion is outward pressure to keep the rules. Now, don't do this, do, do this. Don't do this, do, do that. Do this, take this, don't take that. That's outward pressure to keep the rules. We don't even like the rules. Christianity is repent, invite the living Christ into your life. He'll forgive you and he'll change you on the inside. And you'll do what's right, not because you have to, but because you want to. Is it well with you? But let me, let me go a step further and ask you about your walk with Christ today. You say, oh, I'm telling you, Brother Fred, I know I'm saved. Hallelujah, it is well with you. But let me ask you a question. How's your daily walk with Christ? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, be, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and listen to this, and walk in love. Even as Christ loved you and gave himself for you as an offering and a sweet aroma to God. He said, is it well with you? Can I ask you a question? Are you walking in love even as Christ loved you? Are you experiencing the same kind of love and forgiveness in your heart for others? Are you walking in love as Christ loved you and gave himself for you? Is it, how is it with you? Is it well with you? As a Christian, are you walking? And then in, in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, I read this because I find that this is where many people get hung up and struggle. And if you can say this is true, then it's well with you as you walk with Jesus. If you can't say it is well with you, then you need to get it right with God. Listen to what it says. This is in Ephesians 4, verse, uh, verse uh, 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, that's loud speaking, and evil speaking, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, be put away from you. Get it out of your life. With all malice, evil with intent. You ever heard about murder with malice? It was planned and had an intent. So he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And then, this, then, then this is when it's well with you. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. You give, forgive others just like God forgave you. I want to tell you something. If you're walking in love and if you're walking in forgiveness, you know, it's well with you. It's well with you. You're in a position for God's love to be flowing into you and out of you. Oh, he loves you. And so it's not only well with you when you 
know you have salvation. But it's well with you when you're walking in love and forgiveness. And when you realize that Jesus needs to be on the throne of your heart. The Bible says the day is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. It's coming that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now you can bow now and say Jesus is Lord or you can bow later. later. But the truth is, it is well with you when you can say, I bow my knee, I surrender my life to Jesus Christ, and I want you to know that Jesus Christ is my Lord. It's well with you. But let me go on to the next thing. He asked another question. He said, is it well with your husband? (laughs) And is it well with your son? Can I ask you a question? I ask you, is it well with you spiritually? But I want to ask you this question. Is it well with your family? You know, the family is under attack. It's under attack. The Satan hates two things. He hates the family and he hates the church. Because the family was born in the heart of God. It was God who said it's not good for man to be alone. It's God who joined Adam and Eve in a covenant relationship. It's God who gave them the first children. Hey, marriage did not begin with some law passed by some man. Marriage was born in the heart of God. And it will always be the way God intended it and no other way. I want to ask you, how is it with your family? How is it? You see... uh, If the devil can defeat us in our family, he can defeat us in our lives. And in Ephesians 5.33, it kind of sums up. He says a lot about marriage in the fifth chapter, and I'm not going to go through all of that. But I I just want you to see, if, if, if you in your marriage will live by this guideline in, in, in Ephesians 5.33, then you'll be okay. And it's just a simple, simple statement where he says in the fifth chapter and in the um, 33rd verse, listen to this now. It's on the screen. Nevertheless, he's talked about love. Husbands, love your wives like Christ. Love the church. Wives, submit to your husbands even as the church submits to Christ and all that stuff. And we're not going to go into all that. but, But it just said, he sums it up and says, There are some things you don't understand, but you can understand this. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as he loves himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know, when I was at Cottage Hill Baptist, I counseled thousands of couples. I said, I must be the greatest counselor this side of the Mississippi. Oh, no, that wasn't it. I was free. The guy down the street charged a hundred dollars. I didn't know. I mean, I had never had any training in marriage counseling. But Lord, they'd come and and, and whenever they got to me, that that was bad. It was really bad. And I'd sit, look at him, and say, "Jesus, I don't know what to say. Help!" But you know what? If a wife ever loses respect for a husband and doesn't respect him as a man, respect his work ethic, respect his role as the spiritual head of his home. If you lose respect, you, you, you're in trouble. It's not well with you. And, and, and if a husband does not love his wife the way he loves himself, and that means unselfishly, 
unselfish. I mean, you love her like your own flesh. You see, if a husband loves his wife and a wife respects your husband, you've got a foundation to build upon that and a foundation for forgiveness and a foundation for respect to be restored and forgiveness to make things right. Listen, I'm telling you, the enemy doesn't want your marriage to be good. He does not want you to have an enjoyable marriage. He wants you to exist in that marriage. And, and, And so you need to take a hard look and say, am I just enduring this marriage? Are we just living in the same house? Am I just existing this? Or am I right where God told me to be? As a husband, I'm loving my wife like Christ loved the church. And, and, I'm, and, and the wife might say, sometimes my husband, I think, has lost his mind. But I still respect him as my husband. And that I trust God brought you together. And if you can have love and respect, you can overcome any mountain. But when those go. But then that, I want you to notice in Ephesians 6, it talks about the family. Is it well with your son? To ask it, was it well with your son? Hey, you know who it tells to bring up the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Just look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. And, and, and it's so interesting how God puts the emphasis on the role of the husband in the family and in relation to his children. And um, he says over here in chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. All children here, please pay attention to that, will you? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may have long, long life on earth. But listen to this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Don't live a life that angers your children. Don't provoke your children. Fathers, bring them up in the nurture, the training, and admonition of the Lord. Oh, no, Brother Fred, I go to work. It's my wife to raise the children. No, it is not. You're a team. You leave your wife with the responsibility of of, of training and nurturing those children, and you don't have the absence of of a loving father there. They are going to be robbed of the one of the greatest things they could ever have. Fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You pour your life into your children, but you don't understand I work 10 hours. Well, eliminate two hours and spend it with your children. Well, I need the money. No, you don't. You need to be with your children. Well, I don't have but one day off, and I spend 10 hours on the golf course. Okay, what are your kids doing that? Well, you know, she'll take care of them. I know we all know that the greatest tragedy today is 50% of the homes in America have no male figure present. Half? No wonder. No wonder. Things seem to be falling apart when about half of the families, there's not a man there to love his wife and to love his children and to bring them up. I'll tell you one thing. I had the greatest mother that ever lived, one of the godliest women that ever lived. My father was a quiet man. Uh, He was a hardworking man. I never got real close to him, but he was there. He was there. And you know why I could not be a juvenile delinquent? He would have killed me if I was a juvenile delinquent. (laughs) 
oh yeah, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know much about fearing God, but I feared him, I'll tell you that. And boy, when my report card come in, I came home with fear and trembling. Because I usually made B's, but I always made C on conduct. I can't understand that I was a good boy. But anyway, he, what are you doing with the C on conduct? He talks too much in class. Well, that was my personality. You say you still do. But anyway, I'll tell you what, brother. I did not get in a lot of trouble. My friends got in, and some of them ended up in prison. My God. But I'll tell you, even though my father was not the most loving human in this world, I knew one thing. I better obey, and I better do what's right. Because if I didn't, I was going to answer to him. You see how important it is? So the question is, is it well with you spiritually? And the second question is, is it well with your family? But I'm going to get all the way away from this text. And I did add this in, especially because I want to ask this question. And you say, well, you got away from the scripture. I did not. I'm just going to go in another direction. If you don't like it, you don't have to buy the tape, okay? I'm just kidding. Is it well with you? Is it well with your family? Is it well with our nation? That, that, that's a sobering question to ask. Is it well with our nation? You know, as I thought about this, I want to say to you, with all of our problems, with all of the chaos and confusion, this is the greatest country in the world to live. We don't have a tyrant at this point that can tell us what to do and what not to do. We are free. You know that. And I think of the 5,000 men that died on the beaches at Normandy so we could stay free. And so we, we have freedom, y'all. We do. We can choose the job we work at. I mean, we have, a, we have so much freedom. We, we, we really, this is, a, it's wonderful to, uh, to be in a country where you're free. And, and now if we criticize the government, they don't like it, but at least they're not putting us in jail yet. Oh, let me tell you something. Saudi Arabia, you know, was a big oil company in the oil-rich world. I read a, a document about them, and the older uh, Saudi passed on, and his son took over. And now the price of oil is down to nothing. And the middle class was totally supported by the government. Totally supported by the government. I mean, they had luxurious lifestyles. The middle class in Saudi Arabia, but now the oil's not worth anything, and the standard of living has gone down. And so they've started criticizing the Saudi regime. Guess what they've done? This year they cut 150 people's heads off. And anybody that disagrees with the government, they put them in jail. That's in Saudi Arabia today. See, so you don't take for granted. And that's why we got to fight for and stand for the freedom that God has given us. And the Constitution gave it to us. And we're not going to let the devil or hell or anybody else take it away from us. Because God gave it to us. But the Bible says that we must, where our problem is this. Our problem is, is in the moral decay. That's where our problem is. Three things happened to us in my lifetime. I was born in 1937. One, the rise of humanism. Humanism manifesto one and two said no deity will save us. 
we must save ourselves. It is totally atheistic. Signed by most of the major leaders in the universities back in the 40s. Another aspect of Humanist Manifesto, too, said there there are no moral absolutes. Consenting behavior between two adults is fine, and nobody should condemn it, and nobody should criticize it. And what happened, humanism not only said we're atheistic, no deity will save us, we must save ourselves. Can I make a statement? We're not doing too good a job. We are not saving ourselves. Oh, no. You leave God out, and you're in deep trouble. And this, this situational ethic, the situation determines it's right or the situation determines it's wrong. So we throw out, the, uh, throw out the moral law of God. And when you throw out the moral law of God, all you have is chaos and confusion. And everybody does what's right in their own eyes. So our problem is spiritual. It's spiritual. The moral decay of this nation. Not only is our humanism, but their secularism. And you know what that is? Take God out of the public life. Take God out of the public domain. Take God out of school. Take God out of the courthouse. See, they want to be a secular society. Secular means without God. Come on. And so, but here we living with humanism and secularism. But you know the thing that eats our heart out is materialism. You know why I say that? I want you to listen to this verse. The love of money is the root of all evil, Second Timothy. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that. God blesses some people financially. It's all right to have money if it doesn't have you. But he says the love of money. Why is the pornographic industry taking more money than all the National Football League and all the Major League Baseball Leagues. Why does it take in more money? And it's a a, a sheer abuse of women and a sheer abuse of the sanctity of marriage. Why does it do it? It's all because billions of dollars that go to the pornographic industry. It's the love of money. Why do so many people just engage themselves in the drug traffic, selling it, selling it, selling it, selling it, why? They don't care if people overdose. They don't care if they kill each other because somebody didn't pay for their drug deal. They don't care about that. You know what they care about? It's called M-O-N-E-Y, money. Why do you think we had the great collapse eight years ago? Because the big banks and the mortgage industry absolutely sold us out. And most of us here lost everything that we had in our home. Why? The love of money. So, Is it well with our nation? In many ways, we're free. But under God, we've sold out and we're getting into bondage morally. And only God can take us out. You say, all right, Brother Fred, what's the answer in America? What is the answer? Well, of course, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people mourn. Elect righteous, godly leaders. Amen? It ain't what party you're in. You just know somebody is righteous and godly. But that, that's good. But let me tell you, the only thing that's going to return this nation back morally is when the church of Jesus Christ becomes alive and powerful and full of God. Religion in America is ignored, absolutely ignored, because it's, it's, it's bankrupt, and instead of changing the world, it invites the world in 
to it, and the traditions of men have taken the place of the Word of God. And I'm telling you, there will be no turning back to God until the church of Jesus Christ becomes alive and powerful by the Spirit of the living God. I mean, we've got to have revival. We've got to have revival. Listen. It's not too hard for God. It's too hard for one man. And we need to elect the right man to president. It's hard for, for, for just the Senate. And it's too hard. But let me tell you, the only person it's not too hard for is God. And he's done it before. And we, are we going to settle with the less and leave our children with a nation that we did not have because the church just fiddled while Rome burned? You can make a difference. You can experience revival in your heart and you can pray for this nation. And and as one of the guys said to me, I I talked about, well, we're about to the election. He said, we need to get, you know what he said? We need to be on our faces. I said, my God, you're exactly right. We don't need to worry and pray. We just need to pray. Man, we need to pray. And we need to pray for revival. And we need to let God do it in us. And listen, there's some things you can't do, but I'll tell you what you can do. You can pray. And God help us if we don't pray for this nation because I've got 10 great-grandchildren and my God, I don't want them to have to live in this moral abyss the rest of their lives. And I know you feel the same way.